Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded live. Welcome to the GIC call. It is better known as Grounded in Commerce. It is April 7, 2015. Grounded in Commerce group objective with bringing sense to the seemingly sense of world of commerce. People tend to get lost in their administrative pursuits and processes, and we also uh, and also being applicable to the private and public merits and standing. We offer our listeners very exposure to educational materials to gain an, an understanding to one's pursuits. This material here is not to be misconstrued as legal or financial advice. We strongly ask you, if you need legal or financial advice, to seek out a licensed attorney or financial planner or both. This material here is for entertainment purposes only. And I would like to start a call on a court case that I found. And the guy's name is on the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Western District of Missouri. And the parties were uh, Marty and Eugene Box and Tammy Jean Box. There was a case number. It's um, 10-20086. And it was an order denying motion for relief from stay. Right? And what happened here was there was a trustee. The, the, um, the party was, there were the debtors. And the party didn't, um, didn't do anything, but there was a trustee that did all the work here. So it's about a 15-page document, but I wanted to read what the um, court explained, that what, the, what they had said about um, some of the stuff that was going on. And uh, the decision they made, and this was in Missouri, they said that generally a mortgage loan consists of a promissory note and security instrument, usually a mortgage and deed of trust, which secures payments on the note by giving the lender the ability to foreclose on a property. Typically, the same person holds both the note and the deed of trust. In the event that the note and the deed of trust are split, the note is practically matter becomes unsecured. The practical effort in splitting the deed the trust on the promissory note is to make it impossible for the holder of the note to foreclose unless the holder of the deed of the trust is an agent of the holder of the note. Without the agency relationship, the person holding the note lacks power to foreclose in the event of default. Person holding a note, person only holding a deed of trust will never experience default because only the holder of the note is entitled for payment of the underlying obligation. The mortgage loan becomes ineffectual when the note holder does not also hold the deed of trust. They also said something else regarding assignments. They said when the holder of the promissory note assigns transfer of the note and the deed of trust is also transferred and the assignment of the deed of trust separates from the note and has no force, effectively the note and the deed of trust are inseparable. And when the promissory note is transferred, it in the transferee, all interest rights, powers, and security confirmed with a deed of trust upon the beneficiary therein and pay in the notes. So I thought I would bring that up for our call today, but it's about a 15-page document. It's got some, a lot of case law in there. It's got a there's a case about that. 
and uh, I thought maybe that might be something we could start off the call with today. So. Has anybody ever heard about this case or anything? Uh, have any questions? So the, the question presents itself at this moment that um, what did the trustee do? Why did he, you know, make, questions you may ask yourself is why did he do what he did? Um, did he have to do it? Um, is that his? Um, would he? Would if he if he did it? Would he get in trouble? You know, like is there is there something that he may have done that might have gotten him in trouble? Um, I guess those are questions that one should start asking oneself because he put it upon himself to ask those questions and. I don't know if any one of you have been in a bankruptcy situation, but most of the time the trustee doesn't really talk much. They just really sit back and let everyone, I mean, he may ask them questions and things, but he doesn't really take action. Um, and I don't, you know, the question is, is he supposed to take action? Do you know if that's appropriate for him to do that? Um, so those Nancy, are... you're breaking up. Okay. For whatever reason, and Chuck was too. Is there anything I can do about that on my end? Do you know? No, it just—it's raining and sunshining at the same time. That's yeah, that's about all I can say. <laughs> Having some weird. Well, Nancy's actually, Nancy is exactly right. What we're saying is that the trustee took it upon himself to find out whether or not, because the debtors had no clue about. You know, promissory notes, notes, or anything like that. But the trustee took it upon himself. And the case, and, and this is really amazing because the case here is that he's telling you exactly how to what's going on with your note and deeds, and um, what you can do about it. So this is coming from like um, for us, like a third party. He didn't have any interest, but he was he had done it. So uh, I don't know if we can post this on something or how someone could find it, but maybe Nancy can help us on that. But um, when you read this, you know, it's like whatever we're, we've been saying is exactly what they're saying in, in uh, this court case, too. So. And again, the question from my perspective is who, what, when, where, why, and what if. Um, mm -hmm. So who was the person that took the action? You know, what was the action that they took? You know, where did they take the action? You know? Um, what, when, where, why, why did he do it? Um, and my favorite word is what if. <laughs> yeah, and I think, the, I think the why is a very powerful question to ask yourself because um, from my perspective in a bankruptcy situation, is not the trustee supposed to, um, well, I guess in, in the question of just a, a regular trust, is not the trustee supposed to work with all parties? Is he not supposed to not create damage to the trust? Um, maybe that's something to look at from the perspective of do a lot of trustees do anything when they get into that courtroom setting? Um, and by the way, it's a very uh, minis I don't know, minimizing way of, of being in a courtroom because most 
bankruptcy hearings are are um, done in front of one person and sitting in front of a table. It's kind of quasi in, in my section of the state anyway. So, um, you know, only if you've done if you've got a really huge case, you know, that does it go in actually before a judge or a magistrate. But um, otherwise, the trustee's just sitting there and he's listening to both sides of the who comes forward and says that they've got a claim. So does he really have to do that? Or is he, or is this particular trustee just going, you know, above and beyond the call of duty or actually not even above and beyond, but is he just doing his duty? And is this a lesson to learn from those that may be in a bankruptcy situation that if they understood what rights and responsibilities the trustee had, they might be actually be able to call forth the trustee to hold the trustee responsible for doing the right thing. Well, obviously the trustee took on himself this responsibility to take these actions. And my, and your questions prompted my question of what were the repercussions to this fellow? Because we know that the industry, the banking industry and the foreclosure mills um, do things that are questionable, colorable, illegal uh, routinely. And the courts accommodate that. So I just wonder what what may have been the consequences to this fellow who took that action, the trustee, in other words. Because he I doesn't know unless call, I looked into call, it. I'm sorry, but they, he did call the people, the, the, the last name was Box, and he called them the debtors. And it's all through the document. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we always say that we you're not a debtor. You know, you don't, you don't go in the same, anything like that. But... Because um, they didn't, they didn't provide anything, I and mean, they thought they were probably were the debtors. So that's kind of amazing. There was also something else that was in it. There was an affidavit. It was like a partially filled out blank form, and where you know it was just a form that's like a um, manufactured document, and where they're just signing it, signed size there. But they didn't swear to anything because you know it's not coming out of their own words. It's just something that you know this document looks right, sign it. You know that's kind of it's a, it was another document they brought in there. So. But I'd like to say to everybody, you know, please, I don't know how we'll get a few, but um, listen, read it, you know, and go over it because, um, you know, and you may have to read it two or three times to really understand what, what's, what's going on with that. So. I'd like to interject and ask a question, if I may. Um, because the phone was kind of fuzzy, it, I couldn't quite catch what exactly this trustee did in the court regarding the debtors. And if I understand, this is about a mortgage that's actually being foreclosed mm-hmm. versus a debt, uh, bankruptcy per se. So um, if you could just recap um, just really briefly, what took place in the court and was this trustee acting supposedly uh, on, was he paid and on behalf of the people? That were losing the property, I couldn't quite hear it on the phone earlier. Okay, well, it was, a, it was a chap. It was it was a motion. It was an I mean, order denying motion for relief of stay, and it was a trustee in a Chapter Seven case that challenged though was a BAC standing, and uh, he actually did take it on his own permission to 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 find out whether or not that these people. Really, did, did there was any standing that the um, the bank was saying that they had some standing and they wanted to you know, get this property or whatever. But, um, and then he went right through it. And they had Bellisteri. We always talk about Bellisteri. There was a court case about that, and um, it was talking about that too. So, but, um, Nancy, the motion to uh, relief from stay, the bank wanted to be able to sell the property, take the house and sell it, and the judge denied that motion. Yeah. 
and and notice too that uh, I believe Missouri is um, is not a um, uh, it's a deed of trust state. It's um, so non judicial. Non judicial, absolutely. So, Thank you. Yeah, for those of you that don't know what a um, relief of stay is, a stay is is where someone's asking to be so relief of stay. Um, he wants relief to be granted to get out of the bankruptcy. That's the terminology for what he's asking. And this happened to be the, the mortgage or, or, well, not the mortgage or, sorry, the lender. And it may have not even been the lender. It may have actually been the servicer. Mm-hmm. Because from the documents, that's, that's the question that the trustee's asking. But I wanted to point out that it, 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 in your case, it may be the lender. It may be you know, the servicer, it may be just a debt collector. But you don't know because the only people you've been receiving mail from or communications from may be that person that's, you know, just, I mean, that's just the person that's just a debt collector now. But you don't know that. So they ask for a relief of stay. And the relief of stay grants them the permission to get out of the bankruptcy to sell the property. And once that happens, then most of the time the reason that the people went in the bankruptcy in the first place is gone. So if you don't, if the relief of stay is granted, and those, the, you know, the debtors that, that wanted to file the bankruptcy in the first place or file the bankruptcy in the first place, um, they actually then, if they lose the relief of stay in the bank or the you know, lender, whoever is granted to be relieved out of that, then they will sell the property. And they still may either, then they can still either have the option of, because that's usually before um, any other deeper hearings, um, they can usually uh, file a cancellation of the bankruptcy and jump out of it and close it out so that it's like it's not like it never happened, but like before it goes any further. Does that make sense? It also could look, it also could be like a big windfall for the um, the homeowner. He had not done any work at all, and if he read this thing, he's going to be like, "Wait a minute, why? You know, maybe uh, I might have my house." You know, so you know, um, something to just notice. I mean, and the, the same language we're all we're saying right here. Everything we're talking about, you know, um, mortgages and promissory notes and all that stuff. So. Uh, if I can jump in on that, the subject matter, if you don't mind, that is, the subject matter of a relief from stay is that they're seeking to remove themselves of the elements that is binding the party from um, various liquidations. Generally speaking, it's two properties. More often than not, if we're speaking about properties as far as a bank or a lender, generally the relief from stay, what they're seeking to do is affix the debtor's home insurance, the insurance that's placed on the home. So in other words, they can apply against that for default on the uh, on the property is generally what it is that they're seeking to do. And when we're speaking about the trustee within a bankruptcy proceeding, Generally speaking, unless there was something else within what you had stated, Charles, from what um, what is usually the, the case, 
is when the bank or when the bankruptcy is filed, there is a well, you could call it like a show cause hearing or evidentiary mm-hmm. hearing, whereby it's a meeting of the creditors. And during that period of time, it is the trustee, um, which is not to show favor to either either side. And that in that case there, the trustee, whether they had taken it upon themselves or they're just simply familiar with um, negotiable instruments in general, the subject matter is, is that there was insufficient evidences from the creditor to be able to move forward as to claim that they were, in fact, the creditor, which is more likely than not the reason why they didn't lift the state. You know, it might be kind of, kind of if we could find out later what happened to the case, um, if it got adjudicated or anything like that, it might be something that one might want to look at and see what happened. But I'm going to put that in there too. I think that an interesting uh, topic may be is if uh, perhaps it had been brought up as to, uh, to say that if a party had moved forward requesting a lift of the stay, um, what would you do? Uh, well, you, I, I don't want to answer, but I mean, if somebody else wants to answer, go ahead, because I kind of know the answer. But It's only the four of us now. Oh. Quiet title. Here's your answer. Quiet title. So, if, if I were to want to keep the debt in the bankruptcy, I would request that the um, that the other party, the banker or the lender or the servicer or the debt collector, whoever that might be, that they provide some evidences they in fact have not a title and interest in the note even though federal jurisdictions don't want to necessarily hear about title, but since the title and the note belong together, I would assert that by asking for those two documents and relevant documents in the preceding meeting starting from the beginning of the mortgage or beginning of the um, you know, directly from either the mortgage or the deed of trust, from that document forward to find out who might have had some other interest or in the title uh, report, it may show a couple of people, it may not sequentially go from party A to party B to party C to party D, um, and and the note may, uh, transfers of the note may not um, match the assignments of the instrument. And so if those do not match, then I would request that they be dismissed from the bankruptcy. After, after the evidentiary hearing, that I would request that the, um, they be removed from the bankruptcy as they have no uh, credible grounds to be in the, in, as a representative of some debt to this uh, party. 
Although no. If, if I could play the devil's advocate on that, okay. if the subject matter is is a, the the opposing or the opponent is looking at 3-301 test 3, that even if uh, perhaps they came into wrongful possession of the instrument, does that... Well, I would have to say that if he's attempting to um, <laughs> attempting to effectuate a document that he is still in wrongful possession of, um, that he still has to have the title to match. I would agree, that, but the subject matter of the title is now speaking uh, solely into the assignment, but isn't the opponent... Uh, basing their uh, cause on interest, and is that not the subject matter of a federal jurisdiction? It is. Yep. <clears throat> but you, one also could remand that request to have it remanded back to the state until the uh, determination of, of property interest rights or property rights were um, were fully and completely satisfied. I'd like that. How would we go about doing that? I mean, based upon just a party showing up and making claim, perhaps throwing down a few documents that supports that they have a form of interest, uh, do you think that just by saying at that point in time that uh, you would seek to have the case remanded back to the state to satisfy the assignments, to identify whether or not the opponent is actually a person that's entitled to enforce the instruments would be suitable at that point, or do you think that perhaps there would have to be other uh, steps taken first. It doesn't seem like that would be appropriate since it's a bankruptcy court because you're dealing with, with bankruptcy, whereas the state doesn't deal with bankruptcy. So uh, maybe you would have to separate um, issues or causes there. Oh, and I think that that's what we're doing right now is that we're separating yeah. the chaff from the wheat. And, um, and and I would, what, about, what about this term, Kenny? I kind of, I'm going over this term. What if, what if we say there's a conflict conflict between law and equity? Hmm. See, again, our, right now, the matter of equity is speaking to lawful elements, which then goes back to the state, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so the object is at this moment in time that in a federal jurisdiction, it is only an interest in which may be uh, formed. So when we're looking at the concept that's given to interest, can just any kind of a holder step forward with a claim? Well, yeah, I guess you could. I mean, you got a, a three dash three hundred one I I I. That's correct. Any person that steps forward that shows suitable evidences that they are a holder. Now, recognizing that any party can step forward as a holder, and. Now the only thing in which we could do if the subject matter was that we were seeking to save the property or perhaps challenge the party as far as being an actual creditor, if a party had come to the table and they had insufficient evidences to support the claim as a person that's entitled to a force uh, pursuant 3-301, uh, you know, to any of the tests, you know, other than the fact that they just threw out some sort of a document that supported that, you know, that they, you know, there's some kind of a holder. That in order to get the case remanded back to the state, in order to um, satisfy whether or not the person is entitled to enforce the instrument, 
would be, wouldn't we have to request the trustee at that point in time uh, to perhaps postpone the hearing, uh, maybe for 14 days or perhaps 20 days, uh, to allow the opponent to acquire the appropriate documentation that supports their claim as being a person that's entitled to enforce an instrument as opposed to uh, just a simple contract uh, that doesn't uh, provide all the necessary elements of enforcement under the UCC as pursuant 3-301. Within that period of time, and I, I may even add a stipulation to it, uh, just for the consideration that is, as the state, and if my opponent shows back up in 20 days without all the necessary documents to support their claim, that that would justify having this case remanded back to the state in order to quiet the title to determine whether or not the party is entitled to enforce the instrument, therefore qualifying as being a creditor within these proceedings, these bankruptcy proceedings. A clarification, would this be the debtor speaking to the judge or to the trustee? Uh, it would be to the trustee because usually there is a form of an ev evidentiary hearing. There's a, a meeting of the creditors. Okay. And, the trustee and, then, and, and then you want to give them the Wells Fargo manual, too. <laughs> <laughs> and the trustee is the one who uh, is handling that evidentiary hearing? Yes. Is that correct? Yes, okay. That's correct. They, they, they sit there and they weigh the balances to determine whether there can be various settlements and whatnot held okay. uh, prior to bringing it back in front of the judge for the ruling. Okay. Then again, keep in mind, if the, if the, the debtor, because now we're, that person is now considered a debtor if they file bankruptcy, mm -hmm. if the debtor is not on top of their game, and they don't know how to rebut the, we'll just say, the presumptions, um, they will end up losing their, generally, they'll end up losing their stay. You know, they'll, it'll be lifted, and the party will go ahead and move forward with the, um, with the sale of the property, usually. Not always, but usually. You know, what's in, one thing that's nice about this whole bill is that actually some people are actually starting to see, see this. And it's just not like just a few people in the world. It's starting to, it's starting to grab hold in some ways. So that's a good sign, you know. So you're just you're so you're not beating yourself up the road all the time. There are some people doing the same thing. So I think that's a, you know. I'll also point out that there are many, many times um, that there are no. I mean, sometimes there's just nobody that shows up. You go to the creditors' meeting and no one shows up. I mean. You know, the, the debtor shows up because they believe that they're supposed to be showing up. Um, but from the creditor side, most of the creditors don't show up. And really? That happens, that, that happens very frequently. Um, and, and another caveat from that is that I've experienced or found out or whatever is, is that many times one of, there is a husband and wife that are still married and only one of the parties files for um you know, oh. a Chapter 7 or a Chapter... Well, actually, they can only file for a Chapter 7 unless they can prove that all their assets are all their own and the wife has no assets or the husband has... You know, whichever other party has no assets. Because um, on a Chapter 13, it's a file reorganization. Uh, or, I'm sorry, a Chapter 13 is a reorganization. So they're looking for a payment plan. 
of uh, chapter both eleven seven. and both eleven and thirteen are generally a form of reorganization. Seven, right. Yeah. Total liquidation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And eleven is just you got you got some assets and some money, and you're and you're trying to reorganize. And many businesses do a chapter eleven for reorganization. Most personal people or individuals do a um, a chapter thirteen if they're going to do a reorganization or a chapter seven. But what I was saying is is that the husband you say the husband um, files bankruptcy um, in in many of those cases whether there's a mortgage on the property or not, the bank will not show up because they don't believe that they have to because they're still counting on some action from the wife or the other party to do something. So, um, I, I, like I said, from my experience, that's just been what I've noticed. Now, that the tides may be changing and shifting and all the rest of that stuff, but it certainly has been an interesting um, process to watch how when they show up, you know, why the creditors show up, what they show up for, who they show up for. If it's some Joe that, you know, has put in some real hard cash, you better believe he's going to be showing up, okay? Like, hey, I did work. I'm a contractor, and I did work on this guy's house, and I want to be paid. You know, hey, he's going to show up for the bankruptcy, uh, the creditors meeting. If it's a bank or a finance company, very rarely do you see them show up. Oh, isn't that also being used um, from uh, from our exposures? Have we not also uh, gained some insights to recognize that frequently the banks will not come in for the challenge over the property until after the bankruptcy has been? Oh, right. Mm-hmm. In other words, they just keep doing what they're doing, which is moving defective instruments um, contrary to established or applicable law. In other words, they're almost acting as if they're um, seemingly above the law. Um, Is that in in its broadest sense, I'm not saying that they are. It just seems as though uh, they don't seem to care less. They're they're operating, in my assessment, as if the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And, And they're getting away with it, you know, unless, of course, the... Uh, in a bankruptcy, it would be the debtor. Uh, otherwise, if we're talking about other cases, the subject matter is is to the borrower. That if they, you know, if you were in court there, Kenny, and you were the debtor, I mean, couldn't you move the court if the uh, creditors never showed up and said, "Well, they didn't show up. I moved them, move some, move and dismiss this case." And now, what's the judge going to do? They're not here. Well, see, one of the issues again is following procedures, rules, and whatnot. And we'll recognize as an example that bankruptcy, although it sounds easy, um, the object is, is, well, it's very complex. I mean, it can take on some very complex dimensions, uh, especially for those that are skilled within bankruptcy itself. Uh, An example uh, in in that regard is to note how many times uh, Donald Trump has claimed bankruptcy. Oh, jeez. More than once, I know. Uh, multiple times. And the interesting thing is, is that we should recognize that he, um, the average Joe, as an example, if they go through bankruptcy, um, not only is it weighed against them for 10 years on their credit reports, but it also, um, it, they're, they're prevented uh, from filing bankruptcy 
And I do believe it's seven years now. I, I, I think uh-huh. we raised it to seven years. Uh, to where a party can't refile for bankruptcy in seven years. However, if you take a look at Donald Trump, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it seemed to me that I seen reports where this guy popped off a couple, two, three bankruptcies within four years. Wow. And so, like, we would have to sit back and say, how could this even be possible? You know, but then we should also recognize it's due to the way he structures himself. Remember, structure is everything, entity distinction, categories, Mm -hmm. and the way that he structures himself. So various application of bankruptcy law as given to a single structured entity, such as, let's say, most people, you know, the... They, they have no form of shelter around them. Um, they usually end up taking the blunt because there's no way to offset or discharge things. You know, there's no way for them, like even under reorganization, as an example, parties that enter into reorganization is just another way of saying, we're going to end up taking all your stuff, liquidating everything that you have, and you're still going to be obligated for the entire obligation anyways. Really? Pretty much. What's the purpose of bankruptcy if it isn't discharged, if the debts aren't discharged? Well, that's what liquidation does, you know, oh. when we're looking at now. See, remember, make that distinction. When we're looking at reorganization, what is it that you're reorganizing? If you were a business, as an example, you could, a person could, uh, like, um, consolidate all their their their. And then what they can do is set up a uh, a form of a discharge plan, if you if you follow what I mean. In other words, like set up a bonding instrument that pushes the obligation beyond, like say, uh, a few years. Maybe it's pushed out five years or ten years or something. For the average Joe, that's not an option. They don't they don't have that structure to to permit that you know, as, you know, a viable, like they would have to have the viable income to be able to show that they would be able to afford that type of, of reorganization. Generally speaking, they can't do that. It, think of it as predatory lending, I suppose. Under the, the various um, adjustable rates that they throw in there, you know, the, the shifts in the interest, Ultimately, the person who um, slides into that, they can't, they, they'll never be able to get out from underneath it. It's like loan sharking. They're, they can't get out from underneath it, so they end up losing everything. I see. And interestingly enough, um, I've been around the travel community for a long time, and it was always a... Um, we always had one airline, and they forever, and they, and they dealt with a part of the country that seemingly not many people wanted to go to. So, like clockwork, they would file bankruptcy. Oh, my goodness. And and come back as the same name. So, um, again, I would assert that they had the structures and, you know, all the necessary paperwork and documents and organizations and people behind it to keep going, but literally they would stop for like two weeks um, and then restart up. And, and for us, like I said, it was kind of a joke, you know, because we're like, 
oh, yeah, they're going bankrupt again. Okay. And, you know, it was like five, six years in that realm that they would do that. Um, and, and it was almost like clockwork. You could almost count on it to happen and occur. But, you know, it, so knowing about structures, knowing how they're done and how they're placed can be very advantageous for people to really grasp that. So. Mm-hmm is what more people should do. Diverse their, diverse or diversify? No, it is diversify. Diversify Diversify their portfolio. Spread themselves around. Not all your eggs in one basket. I would like to pose another topic for discussion, just a brief thing here. In my reading today, I was drawn to look at 15 U.S.C. Section 1641, Liabilities of Transferee. And uh, F2 stipulates that the transferee must notify within 30 days the borrower of of them being the new transferee. And this legislation was put into place in 2009. Could you repeat that, Dave? I think I may have missed something. Could you give me the, well... Yeah, 15 U.S.C., Section 1641, F2. Hold on, brother. I I was trying to grab a pen, and you were already halfway through it. (laughs) Okay. 15 U.S.C.? Yeah, 15 U.S.C., Section 1641. That was 1541? No, 1641. 641? Okay. Yeah, and I'll just read it to you. Um, and it's liabilities of the transferee. <clears throat> Treatment of servicer. A servicer of a consumer obligation arising from a consumer credit transaction shall not be treated as an assignee of such obligation for purposes of this section unless the servicer is or was the owner of the obligation. So here's the F2 part. Servicer not treated as owner on basis of assignment for administrative convenience. A servicer of a consumer obligation arising from a consumer credit transaction shall not be treated as the owner of the obligation, I already read that once, on the basis of assignment from the creditor or another assignee to the servicer solely for the administrative convenience of the servicer. Okay, so I'll just skip all that. Upon written request by the obligor, the servicer shall provide the obligor to the best knowledge of the servicer the name, address, and telephone number of the owner of the obligation or the master servicer of the obligation. So we can request who is the mortgagee, and they are required to um, inform us or the borrower. Within that same context, you know, uh, for purposes of, well, entertainment, if I convey an instrument to a party and then they accept it, in that, in that scenario, then I become the obligor, correct? Yeah, rather than the borrower, because you're the endorser, you are incurring the liability of an endorser. Okay, now what if it was conveyed to another party? Now, when when it goes to the next party, who becomes the obligate now? So now we'll just say party A, party B, party C. So now party C is in possession of the instrument. 
Party B would be the obligor. Oh, there you go. Are you seeing where this is going? No. Well, the subject matter of what you're speaking to is that for oh. an original party. Oh, so the borrower would not be the obligor. It would be the assignees in between the obligor. There you go. That, that, oh. that. So, in other words, what they're doing is they're jumping sharks. That's meaningless then. The, the idea is, is that what they're doing is that they're hanging. Remember when I was speaking to <laughs> the terms? If we start to recognize how they begin using the various terms, they will hang these terms around the weakest, the weakest link. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we know what it was that they were doing, and they're throwing those over, and they go, well, didn't you draft the instrument? And you go, well, yeah. And then the next thing is, well, then you're the obligated party. Do you, do you see what I'm referring to? Yes. When in turn, the subject matter is this, hold it, cowboy, but I didn't draft that instrument directly to party C. There's somebody else involved here. The person in which you're seeking enforcement from is not me. You're looking for enforcement against party B. So this is essentially meaningless um, legislation for the originating borrower. Well, I think that it's dealing with probably the colorable expressions, Dave. I'm just making an assessment. Well, why would it be meaningless, though? That's, I don't see being meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's what it's drafted up is to state that when you're looking at somebody who's operating as a servicer, as an example. Now, remember, you still have um, A, B, C, D, and E with subsets in each one of those as well that you'd have to entertain when you get up to F, right? But the idea is that when we're looking at the treatment of the servicer, that's what you're speaking to at the moment, right? Treatment of servicer. Right. That the servicer, as when they're saying, not treated as the owner on the basis of an assignment for administrative convenience. Okay, well, you can, you can usher in convenience all you want. However, what if it's rebutted? Oh, okay. They got to prove it. They have to prove. You see where you see what I'm what I'm speaking to. In other words, if we are not aware of the game in which they're playing, and then simply rebut the presumption for I don't know the administrative convenience, um, then that may kind of make it a little difficult for them to move forward with any type of enforcement. Otherwise, we're just making admission that we become the obligated party. So in, what I understand this to be saying is the obligors are the previous assignees, assignors, I mean, previous assignees, and so they're really only required to notify each other, not the actual borrower. That's correct within that regard. <clears throat> that's, what, that's how I would interpret it, Dave. Right. So let me read G1, because this is also interesting. In addition to the other disclosures required by this subchapter, not later than 30 days after the date on which a mortgage loan is sold or otherwise transferred or assigned to a third party, the creditor that is the new owner or assignee of the debt shall notify the borrower in writing of such transfer, including the identity, address, telephone number of the new creditor, the date of transfer, how to reach an agent, having authority to act on behalf of the new creditor, the location, and other relevant information. And the fine for failure for that is up to four thousand dollars. 
right? Now, within that same context, who's the borrower? <laughs> I was going to say the original borrower, but can the borrower be somebody besides the... Well, when we're dealing with credits and we're dealing with in, um, uh, endorsements, isn't it in that chain of custody? Isn't the person who is last in line that endorsed the oh. instrument, don't they become obligated to the assignee? They are the obligor, yes. And does that also make them the borrower? And credits it would be because they're playing with credits. So I would say yes. See, that's confusing to me. I would think that they would be the seller, um, not really a borrower. Well, see, in my assessment, when I look at the term borrower, see, the, the way that the bar, you know, the term borrower is, is listed, is it saying that it is a, is it a noun or is it a verb? You mean in the statute? I, I wouldn't know how to identify that. Okay, well, if I, if I were looking for something as to, as to state identity of person, wouldn't I say, as an example, original borrower or originating borrower? And even that could be subjective. I see. Okay. If you're if you're if you're following where where I'm taking this. Otherwise, if I said borrower, well, what if there was somebody else that was involved in the transaction? Say that they had. Um, um, hmm. Uh, borrowed the money, you know, Party B had borrowed money uh, from somebody else. Are you, are you following yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And then within that context, then who's the borrower? Okay, that's an interesting consideration that I hadn't thought of. You know, because, you know, like, if now if we took it back to Ab Initio and we said, okay, yeah, party A, party B, party A being the originating borrower, and party B is being the lender in this example. Mm -hmm. If the lender had borrowed the money from another party, oh yes. Okay, does that now, subjectively speaking, which which now keep in mind, the originating borrower on the contract has no knowledge that the lender borrowed the money. Mm -hmm. So who's the borrower, unless it's identified specific? You're right. Okay. I see your point. Very good point, too. <clears throat> That's legislation money can buy. I agree. And see, this is like the more that, um, the more that I dig around within these papers, and, and one of the things in which I seek to push, and I'm sure that we're all coming to terms with this, is the subject matter of identity of person. Now, they will throw terms left and right to tr see who it sticks on, if you're following what I'm saying. And if, you, if we do not stand up and rebut the presumption of a title in which somebody else is seeking to affix to us, then we, uh, we're behind the curve. We may end up losing whatever litigation or suits or 
you know, whatever it is, uh, simply because the object is is that we did not we did not challenge the assignment of that title. We did not go beyond the face value of the term in which they're using. So if somebody says, well, you're the borrower, and say, are you claiming there wasn't any other borrowers? Yep, that's a good good way to point it, yeah. Because there's always that possibility. Now, subject to uh, the matter, we will recognize that subjectively there is multiple borrowers that are uh, involved in these transactions, multiple lenders that are involved in these transactions. It's just that they're all acting under, uh, we'll just say, private secondary markets. And unless we decide to slide that curtain and say, well, what about that? And what I'm referring to is, well, isn't there other parties that are involved within this transaction? Why aren't they here? Why aren't they joined? Why aren't they part of this suit? And if they're trying to say that those obligations were satisfied, then why aren't they in possession of the documents to support that? Mm. And if they're satisfied, then is there really any obligation left? That would be, that's a good question right there. Mm-hmm. If the original debts have been paid off, then why are you knocking on my door? Yep. Other than to play the game of fool and his money is soon parted. <laughs> and that's a great song. Yeah. So there is another topic. Um, in in reading through the UCC, they keep referencing incomplete instruments, or several times I've seen that. Um, what I don't understand is why would an incomplete instrument be created? And can you give any examples of what an incomplete complete instrument would be and what its use would be? There's also alteration that goes with that too, Dave, the word alterations. Oh, indeed it does. So let's just stop and think about this for just a half a second because I think you could answer your own question if you just... Well, I know that a blank endorsement, I guess, yeah, it would be considered an incomplete instrument. Okay, but what's an instrument? Remember, in an instrument in this particular... An instrument is a negotiable instrument that also is connected or backed by a security instrument. Correct. Okay, and so are they not bound by the contract? Yeah. Okay, so well, the originate, uh, identify that, the originating contract or the covenant. Right, yeah, the originating contract or the deed or the mortgage. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if they're if they're bound, if the instrument is bound by the originating uh, deed or mortgage, when you have just a note that's assigned, let's say to Bank C, and the security instrument is assigned to Bank um, Q, is that an incomplete instrument, or is it a complete instrument? No, it's bifurcated, which is not incomplete. That's an entirely separate 
category uh, or concern, yeah. issue. I, th- I think where you get lost on the incomplete thing is, is you know, I looked at it, too, over and over and over and over and over and over. And I kept thinking, kept thinking that maybe it was sort of the negotiable, the promissory note, and not so much the instrument. But I have came to the conclusion that yes, it is a, it is both the negotiable instrument and the, and the uh, security instrument. And you one or the other, or both, right? Or both. Or both. Because yeah. how about this? Yeah, you wanted an example. How about something that doesn't say "pay to the order of." Would that be considered a, if, when we're talking in, about notes? Incomplete, yeah. Incomplete? Yeah. That would be incomplete. Okay. How, about if, how about if we looked at an assignment, and for purposes of exploration here, let's just say um, referring to the property description. Is there not oh. uh, three lines, three separate entries for property description? Mm-hmm. And what well, we could pretty much say that almost legal. any almost any transfer that ever can come out of there is incomplete instruments. I mean, awesome. almost it. I mean, unless you're keeping your eye open for it, but like, if nothing else, I can virtually omit a mailing address. I, I can have virtually it. omit a commonly known address. Mm-hmm. But can I omit a legal description? Well, that would be. Uh, an incomplete instrument, or it could be a clerical error, con- considered a clerical error, maybe. It's possible, but within that context, what if I was looking at a Schedule A, which is being in reference to a warranty deed, whereby uh, the legal description was not included and the commonly known address wasn't listed, and all there was was a mailing address? Oh, that would be problematic. Why? Because you don't have any accurate description of the property. In other words, it could be an unknown property. Now you're speaking. That's exactly right. So a clerical error in this regard that even when we're speaking to a legal description, that in the formation of a covenant, in the uh, subject matter of uh, seizing the property from where where the title company uh, is making um, known that the, we're going to call them the originating borrower now, um, is now season of the property. What property are they season of if there's no legal description? They couldn't be. That's correct. They would not be, so they were Bevel Lockwood. Mm, okay. Okay, so now then, so that right there could represent an incomplete instrument. Is that is are we yeah. you know now mm-hmm. as far as as an example there may be areas um, I would say far and few between that don't have any postal routes you know left within the United States the continental United States anyways I know we that varies up in Alaska that there's that they don't have postal routes yeah we but, got a couple of here okay but if you're following what I'm saying so the commonly known address um in that regard you can it, it, you can almost skip that that's subjective if you're following what i'm saying you that that's subjective um a, a mailing address you can pretty well skip that too because i mean after all my i could own a piece of property in ohio and have a mailing address in in hawaii yeah hawaii 
So that right there doesn't identify the property either. So just using this concept of the CITES address does not necessarily mean that um, by omission for clerical error, even though that they may claim it's a clerical error, that right there is one of those um, null and void issues. Because at that point in time, there was not an actual conveyance of the property at all. Ah, makes sense. And they have lack of authority right then and there. It, it's in direct violation of the statute of fraud at that point because there's no legal description. So my question is, I'm just suspicious because I see reference to incomplete instrument in several different sections of Article 3, and I wonder why. Are they uh, accommodating banks doing uh, chicanery? I'm going to say, I'm going to say it's this. Who is the party that is to bring the law to the bench, Dave? Uh, you are the movement, the moving party. Okay, and if a, if the moving party comes forward with a form of presumption, what if you don't rebut it? And it's true. And it's admitted as fact. Okay. So then at that, that point, the subject matter of a clerical error, if left unrebutted, then can stand as evidence? Yes. Okay, yes. so what if you challenged its status? Okay. And okay. it would defeat that, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the idea is, is that, as you're saying, does it, does I'm not going to say that it's intended to accommodate chicanery, yet in the same breath, I'm going to say that it sure does open the doors for them to do pretty well anything that they want to do upon the ignorant. Oh, of course. And, and within this field here, and, and this is interesting in its own way because when we begin to examine, you know, perhaps who is actually representing us? I'm referring to, uh, you know, the homeowners. And when we come to discover that perhaps the attorneys may not be skilled within this area, or uh, perhaps they're in the network, if you're following what I'm referring to, mm -hmm. the, the network, um, they would just let those things slide. Mm -hmm. You know, because that's just part of the system. Um, now, in the, in the alternative, it is to state that those that are aware of what's going on and challenge these, we'll say, uh, incomplete instruments. Incomplete instrument, is, to me, is just another way of saying defective instrument. Oh, very, yeah, wow. I mean, that's like almost, I mean, really, you look at it, almost every transfer is, is defective, every, every, everything, alteration. I mean, when you start looking at, like, holder in due course, I mean, you can come up with, I mean, you get through the hypothetical, but you could actually come up with 20 freaking listings just on the holder in due course. This all affects each one of those and easily. You know, this could be, you know, you could have alteration, you could have incomplete debt thing, you could have, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, there's no payment. I mean, you, you could go all the way down through each one of those. I wouldn't say payment, but you could basically do that and hold her to course. But, you know, it, it means a lot. I mean, that's what my paper's like blowing up to like 200 pages 
I'm thinking, how can I make this much simpler so somebody else can freaking understand it? You're saying, tell an attorney this. So I have another idea how I'm trying to play this, and I just came over that today, and like, man, I want to make this thing flow so that an attorney can understand, because even an attorney doesn't understand all this stuff. So I've been contemplating this all day. It's been weighing really heavy on me how to make this sound right. So, I mean, I haven't told anybody about it. That's what I've been doing. I called Nancy yesterday, and I, you know, as my little grievances here, I was telling what I was, but, uh, well, see, I, I accommodate you for what you're doing, Charles, because the subject matter of what we're speaking to is that when we understand how the conveyances begin, you know, how the notes are constructed thereafter, mm-hmm. that we should recognize as an example, when we look for at person that's entitled to enforce instruments. Mm-hmm. will come to recognize that there is some 20 codes to explain holder. Yeah. Well, you, you see what I mean? And and I can't believe that that's by chance. Mm-hmm. It's just the way that it's drafted up. So that means how many bites at the apple do these guys get? Oh. Yeah. You know, because that to me that's what it says to me. If I if I have to look at 30 different codes in an effort to identify who a holder of an instrument is, that's telling me that they that they intentionally opened the field up to where they can keep biting at the apple, hoping that um, their opponent drops the ball on on an argument. Because all you have to do is miss one. I'd like to share a line that I read uh, in the proof of facts while reading under quieting title. Um, I got distracted and read colorable title. And the attorney writing the um, comment commentary pointed out something. He was describing qu- uh, colorable title or color of title um, being instruments that appear effective to the untrained mind in law, and I just thought, anyway, it it had a reverberating effect on me of how can they do this with any kind of a conscience, taking advantage of people that are untrained in law through colorable means or methods. It was just... That was 33. Because they have people that are also skilled within law, and they're pulling the wool over their eyes as well. You know, because I, I can't believe that all attorneys are just plain ignorant of law. I, I, I <laughs> you know, that's why they went to school. Right. And so then that would just simply say to me that um, they didn't have the, uh, they didn't have the time, perhaps, to further invest, investigate. In other words, this is not their specialty. The things in which we have been involving ourselves in is the investigation specific that is given towards discharging claims of color of title or cloud on title or, um, let's say, um, invalid assignments or invalid endorsements or defective instruments across the board. Remember, we're on... We're on the front lines for the subject matter 
that's given to chain of title assessments, it's not as if the issue of titles at wasn't an issue some 200, 300 years ago. <laughs> you know, but see, supposedly they had that resolved. Right. And the statute uh, of frauds. Yeah. Had to be in possession of the proper documents. Mm-hmm. Now, what did they do? Well, you still have to be in possession of the proper documents. It's just that they have made it to where they can obscure the transfers amongst each other. You're right. And with inside of it, it's not to say that what they're doing uh, isn't illegal per se. It's just that what they're doing is they're capitalizing on it in their own fashion. However, because they're capitalizing on their own fashion, they're making all the monies on this right here, that if they get caught, and when I'm referring to caught, I'm referring to when somebody comes out and says, wait a second, that's not right. Then that whole house of cards that they built around that that particular contract kind of you know falls in on itself. Mm-hmm. But the issue is, is that most of these things and what we're experiencing right now, these things had been resolved from well, it's going back to the 1600s. Yeah, 1677. Yeah. Uh, it, it had been it had been resolved, and as a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons why even when the colonies were set up before the United States was created, the United States of America was created, they already had a registry department for property. Yeah. Because they they already went through that. That was one of the reasons why they bailed Europe in the first place, was because of the various land grabs and seizures and the way that the, uh, the government was just becoming big brother. And so they bailed. So when they came over here, they says, okay, we learned from those mistakes. Let's go ahead and set up a system that we assure our posterity that this will never happen again. (laughs) You can see how that worked out. (laughs) I mean, it it worked out for nearly 200 years. 300, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just throwing rough, you know, rough numbers. Around 200 years, it worked fine until the lobbyist efforts really came forward um, in full strength. It, it, I mean, it, this wasn't something that they invented, you know, in a year or five years or a decade. This took them years. And when I'm referring to that, all you had to do is go back to the originating UCC back in the 1950s. I see. And you can see at that point in time, that they were already lobbying at that point in time to get their foot in the door for what they did starting in 1995. And the GSEs, or so-called GSEs, were part of that strategy, weren't they? Yes. It's all part of it. I mean, when we look at all the federal, the Fannie Mae's, the Freddie Mac's, you know, all of that entire system, and then start looking at, who was the person that was moving through each of these? And I gave clues on that once before, and Nancy dug it up real quick, if you recall. I gave clues. There's one individual that moved his way through that system. 
Oh. I'll keep my mouth shut. Okay. <laughs> no, remind me. I forget the name. <laughs> uh, we're not going to put that on the recording. Oh, okay. <clears throat> but the issue is, is that we identified the individual who had worked from to, from one agency into the next, into the next, who was the person who moved this lobbying effort in order to create what we see what happened today. There's one individual. We, we'll go ahead and we'll speak on that on a private okay. private line. Yeah. But the issue is, is there was one person. But, I mean, he wasn't the only person. Remember, he was just the focal point. You know, he was the person that was sitting there, and they came and said, this is what we want, and they moved forward. It's not much like uh, perhaps the President of the United States. He sits there, and people come forward and says, this is what we want. And he signs the papers, mm-hmm. which isn't much well, unlike our Congress or our representatives. I mean, when we start looking at the the depths of some of these laws in which they created, you know, like the, um, uh, what was it, the um, generally uh, GATT. The GATT Treaty was something uh, 60, I think it was 62 or 64,000 pages. Wow. And when they came out and they dropped that down, if I'm not mistaken, they had something like 10 days to read it. Oh, jeez. Now, who read it? Nobody. Nobody, Nobody could. It's, it would be impossible. So the best that you could do would be to split it up amongst all of your pages, and then <laughs> your pages come forward to report to you what they gained from it, which would be just an interpretation of what they gained from it, not yep. what was actually written. Right. How long did it take them to write 60,000 pages or whatever? How long did they yeah. write it? That's, that's a good point. And it goes back to just like what, that, uh, what we had recognized. One judge made the statement words to the effect of, in order to resolve this subject matter, what we really need to do is bring forward the attorneys oh, yeah. who drafted, this, who had drafted uh, these laws or these bylaws. That's who we need. And that right there would kind of open up that whole, well, let's just say that at that point, the crap is going to go out both ends of the pipe at that point. And so it would not be very likely that that would ever come out. That that would be like the Clinton Foundation opening up their record books. Let me give a chance to uh, the other participants on the call. Uh, to see if there's any questions. Does anyone have any questions or want to discuss their process? Okay, I just wanted to offer that opportunity. We're just chewing facts right now, but the, the, the issue is is that they spent so long doing what they're doing, and it's now it's the the shine of it's coming off. And uh, for those that are in the know, uh, they're now getting remedy. They don't have to play, you know. The they just need to use the rules that are available to them in the public, and they can gain the revenue. And what is that? Just simply knowing um, what it is what the statutes of fraud 
clause is about and what the actual assignments are to be. When we understand that, it doesn't matter all this um, legislation that they came up with. I mean, they'll they'll take it and they'll throw it they'll throw it down on the table and point at it and say, "See that?" And you go, "I can accept that if what you're claiming is that you're in possession of the documents that support your claim." That's all I'm asking you for, and that's essentially just the mantra here. If you're following what I'm saying, it all goes back to the same subject matter. Are you in possession of the documents that support your claim? And if they do bring documents in, then you just got to say you got to rebut it, and you got to say, well, then, you know, the signatures and whatever, and you're going to have to say, well, how, how did they have authority? And you just keep reverse because yep. they're going to like reverse engineer it back to the beginning is what you're doing. That's wonderful. I'm glad that you brought that up, Charles, because that's exactly what we're speaking to. That any time that they come forward with a new document, does that not open up the door for discovery and interrogatory? Yes. And okay. that gives you a whole new set of 25 That's questions, correct. right? That's correct. Okay. And at that point in time, <clears throat> sit there and they throw something down on the table, then you can start asking questions about that. Like perhaps as an example, um, is the parties that crafted these documents, were they in, did they have access to Vendorscape or desktop or the IPS systems? I read an so affidavit were, were today. You, were you moving on that? Were you moving in that while you said Vendorscape and IPS? Were you going on that? With, with well, lim- what is that? Those, those are the, those platforms whereby they are saying that a person validated, certified, authenticated, notarized, whatever, who knows where they are in the, in the world? We have no idea. And they're putting a stamp on it, and then they're having somebody else say that they have firsthand evidence that person did it. In other words, that's yeah, sort of like a manufacturer source. They get their they're filling the blank documents from those yeah. uh, platforms. Well, another way of looking at it is, you know, the, the platform in which we use there on the weekends? Mm-hmm. That right there is in a similar. I turn around and bring a document up on the, on the top of the table. I can sit there and modify it, and then I can sit there and send it over to you and let you modify it. And then you can send it over to somebody else, and they can modify it. You follow what I'm saying? I see. Now, how can anybody have firsthand witness that anybody that was sitting behind the computer screen during the course of those conveyances were the person in which they claimed to be? They can. Here's something even better. This person was deposed who was supposedly the bank, the branch manager of a bank. And he said, I didn't sign those documents. There you go. And there were three different documents that had his signature on them. Well, see, that's right there. It goes into another one of those issues that is even dealing with, um, um, what do you call it, um, cut and paste. Mm-hmm. You know, and I believe <laughs> his affidavit demonstrated that these were he was um, the bank branch manager at the time that those um, documents were dated to. 
but he had left the company, I think, in uh, 09 or 10 or somewhere. Um, so they created those documents somewhere, you know, in 10, 11, somewhere, and backdated them to 06. <laughs> so the uh, defendants were very wise in deposing the person whose name uh, was on as the signature uh, to find out that, no, I didn't even... I didn't interview you. I didn't approve the loan. I didn't uh, create these documents. It was just really interesting evidence. Uh, to my my question is what uh, read right out of clouded title, Charles, mm -hmm. uh, is specific. It says here, um, page 257 out of May Day. Is it May Day? Yeah, May Day. Uh, page 257 in the italicized um, states, uh, there is further evidence that these entities use database programs like Vendorscape, NewsTrack, or some other persons relied on the same data, oh, excuse me, uh, and some other information access portals, wherein one person inputs data on one end, and another person relies on that same data at the other end, without there ever being a direct communication between the parties, thus negating personal knowledge aspects and the virtuing rendering the entire document as hearsay. Mm -hmm. uh, another one of the things is like what you were speaking to with signature, and they have recognized that when they have brought in FBI handwriting um, uh, analyst experts, that they have sat down and they have taken the signature, and they have taken another document and they've laid it directly over top of that signature, you know, so where the signatures were together, and then they held them up to the light. And they're exact. Oh. Now, what is the probabilities of having two exact signatures? Photocopied? No, I, I can never sign my name the same way twice. Nobody can. Uh, I think uh, uh, Snowball's chance in hell. <laughs> I think a snowball has more of a chance. I think so, too. That's what I'm saying. I, I think they have the whole chance. Well, I'm just viewing that the subject matter is, is that it'll stand at least for a moment or so in hell, you know, before it melts. You know, but the object is, is that when you hold a signature up, and that is another one of the things that kind of, uh, uh, code of preparers do, they analyze things like that. They'll put... The pay, you know, the signatures over top of each other and hold them up to the light, you know, look through the paper. Are they the same? If they're exactly the same, then you know that they were cut and paste. Yeah. Well, here, here's, here's, here's something to add to the whole thing. It's, let's, you know, we always talk about, okay, we catch them in what they're doing. You know, we caught them with the signatures. We caught them with their pants on, so to speak. The, the next thing is, how do you hold them accountable for what they've done? in court, because in, they're going to try to, well, I didn't know. I mean, I'm just the attorney. This is what they gave me. I mean, how do you, you know, other than you could get the attorney to swear you know, on the stand, I guess, and have to swear in, but, I mean, really, how could you do that? I mean, if after, after the fact. It's a great to, question, and actually, what we should be recognizing from the beginning here is do we now begin to recognize the significance of what a CODA does? Beginning to, yes. So, 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 I mean, once once a homeowner, you know, or an attorney 
is having a coda prepared. Now, keep in mind that when they're having the coda prepared, that's usually, uh, you know, either at, you know, either responding to, you know, an opponent, you know, because they're litigating against the, the, the homeowner, or the homeowner is going to go against whoever. If a coda is prepared, then they already have that roadmap of things to be looking out for. True. So True. at that point in time, and which is like what I've recognized as being one of your favorite throws lately, is about Rule 11. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay? So now when we start looking at the concepts that's going behind Rule 11, then what if the opponent was notified Right? They were notified that what's happening at this time may elevate itself to intentional fraud. Now, under the professional code of conduct, which is something that we've reviewed, right? We should recognize what happens when elements like that are brought to an attorney's attention. They can't get out of it for their subsequent actions. At that point in time, he has to sit there and, and call a spade a spade, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Is that where hell freezes over? Okay. <laughs> With That's snowballs. Nancy. <laughs> but if, if you're following what I'm saying, he cannot, he cannot sit there and begin. I believe that's under Rule 6. He cannot sit there and move forward with a claim knowing that he is dealing with falsity. He can't do it. And if he does at that point, that's where he gets exposed to perhaps sanctions by the court. Or in the alternative, he may end up losing his license. Mm. And if his mother is still alive, his mother is going to take him by the ear and twist it until he he does the right thing. Mm. You would want to think so, anyway. So you're suggesting... You could discover that the mother is the senior partner in the law firm. Oh, damn. I hate it when that happens. (laughs) So you're suggesting that the defendant or whomever, the moving party, um, notify the other side early on in the case so that it could help stop or discourage the chicanery. Oh, uh, absolutely. It's not part of before moving into litigation is not the subject matter settlement. Yes. Okay. Outside of court, yes. So in that context, is there not various, we'll say, memorandums in law that are passed? Remember, under remember when we start moving towards the rules of discovery, right? The idea is there is to be no uh, bombshell evidences dropped on the court. That's what evidence, that's what rules of discovery is all about, right? Mm, Right. So if there are elements in which you are, uh, now you're giving, remember, you're approaching your brother before this stuff is being brought out in front of the court. And you're saying, brother, you may want to take a look at what you're doing. You may be in violation of your ethics and now remember, the ethics in the legal profession is not the same as what we view as the body moral. That's two separate issues. Professional ethics and moral ethics are not the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
the concept that is given here is that they would be in breach of the ethics of the legal profession because they are to maintain the integrity of the legal profession. So the idea is, is that if the elements of color of title have been brought to their attention, and not just by a, a claim, you know, you know, like an allegation or something like that, but when you support it with form of evidence as foundation to the claim, and then they want to go ahead and continue proceeding, then there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And what, speculate, please, would you suspect that they would not move forward, that an attorney would not move forward with false, knowingly false documents in that after being notified? Oh, see, that's, a, that's an interesting and a good question because one part of me wants to say, no, they won't. I would like to believe that they would honor their obligation, you know, and their duty because that, that's both, remember, duty and obligation. I can tell you what they'll do, but go ahead, Kenny. I do, I, I do have an idea what the attorney would do. Okay. okay, now the idea is is that I would suspect at that point in time they would try to pass the ball off to another person, you know, kind of like hand it off to a running back. Oh, of course. You know, give it, give it to somebody else and, and let them try to run. This way here, you know, that they could, they could play, uh, play ball with it, and then they'll then they could seek to say, oh well, I didn't know. Plausible deniability. Oh. Yeah, within the same law firm, just a different face or mm -hmm. person, right? Yeah. But see, the issue is is that according to the code of ethics, that if a client is doing something, it is the responsibility of not only the paralegals, like a paralegal is supposed to take the, um, uh, we'll say the indiscretion. Uh, to their supervising attorney. Now, at that point in time, that supervising attorney is supposed to do something about it. Now, let's just say that he was not the senior partner. You know, he would just say that he was an associate of some sort. He may have been a partner, or, but he's not the senior partner. At that point in time, is he not to, he's supposed to handle the case, which means that he would have to talk to his client about this. If that case continued under the same title of how do we unscrew them, they're still moving under that. Would that still not hold that law firm liable because of what the partner did? Of course. Absolutely. Okay, so notifying the lawyer would notify the firm, principal yeah. and agent, right? Notice the agents, notice the principal. Notice the principals, notice the agent. Right, Okay. <clears throat> So I suspect at that time is that um, once the client was informed, and that firm would sit there and give them the you know the billable hours, um, you know to get paid off for what they put into the into the case, and then they would go ahead and they try to find somebody else and see if they would carry it. However, they're still going to be up against the same brick wall. Why? What happens when they file? Or is it not going to be the same type of memorandum in law that's passed along to them and say, hey, cowboy, before you move forward, you may want to verify your evidences, and this is why. Yeah, the defendant and, plaintiff would do that, right, to the new law firm. 
Well, whoever, I'm just referring to the, the homeowner or, you know, the homeowner's mm-hmm. attorney, you know, whoever is operating in that capacity, that whoever it is that decides to step forward, you know, to represent the opponent, that if you have evidences of falsified documents and they're going to go ahead and they're going to continue to move forward with those, they've got themselves a problem, especially once it's been identified. This is one, that's the power of a chain of title assessment. Yeah. Well, here's another thing, too, to think about. Cause I, I've seen this happen, too, where you have this attorney, you were, he was the, you know, he was, you know, for his client bringing it through, and then you were asking him, like, a code of ethics, and he passed the ball off to somebody else in his attorney firm, but he never told this guy, this other man, never told the court that he was going to now be the representing the attorney firm. He just, they just novated it without saying anything to anybody in any court. And if you didn't, brought, I, I'm not so sure whether or not I would have brought that up, but could you not bring that up and say, look, um, I'm talking to Joe Blow here. He's the attorney of record, and now we've got this uh, Joyce blah, blah. Who's, who's this person? And I, don't know, and I have no record that this person is even in any, has anything to do with this case. Now, so, if there has been a case filed, if there's been yeah. a case filed, don't yeah. they have to put in a notice of appearance? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now you got somebody else that's coming out of the woodwork that wants to talk to you. What's yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, and now, see, I mean, like, if you're aware of the systems, what? How would you respond? I have no knowledge of this person here, and this may be an interloper, intervener. It may be. Uh, I don't know if this person's in good standing with the uh, with the bar associates. I have no knowledge of this person. Please produce your yeah. In other words, you're saying in so many words, who are you? Mm-hmm. Produce your documents of authenticity, being those of the work order that has been either given to you by the client to handle this case, or from the attorney. Because remember, attorneys can can hire assigns. You know that that expression that deals with where you say agents and, you know, um, uh, where it goes, uh, agents or assigns. Mm-hmm. There you go. An agent can take an assign. Think of a trustee. Can a trustee turn around and hire an attorney? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, within that right there, do you see on how the trustee is operating in a capacity of, say, an agent? Mm-hmm. And then he's passing the ball over to an attorney, which then yeah, becomes a form of an assign or an assignee, right? Mm-hmm. So now, in that, if he was permitted by the agent the rope or the liberty to state that do whatever it takes in order to resolve this, including and not being limited to hiring whoever is necessary. Could he not also reach out and grab another assign? Okay. Yeah. He will. Okay. Now you can sit there and look at this law firm, this law firm, and this law firm all of a sudden all working together. Are you following what I'm saying? What started off as one law started off as first a trust that ends up having an attorney or a law firm which then turns around and has another law firm 
which then turns around has even another law firm. So now you got three law firms and the trust. Is that making sense? What about what about inter, what about the one law firm hiring? I mean, there was one attorney and then another attorney inside that same law firm, and then maybe to another attorney inside the same law firm because uh, you you know the code of ethics on the one. It doesn't want to hold it. We'll send it off to maybe some lower attorney in the law firm. And yeah, but that's, that's still going to notice the agent, notice the principal. But the subject matter is, is that if that party then steps into the forum, I'm talking about the courtroom, what would be the first thing in which you would say? Uh, I have no knowledge of this attorney here. No knowledge that this attorney is representing whoever. I don't know if this attorney is in good standing or anything like that at all. And um, this attorney needs to step outside this room, right? Well, no, you would ask him to bear evidences that he is with whatever that law firm is, right? Yeah, you could do that, too. So, Well, hold it. The reason I'm suggesting this as for entertainment, again, I'm not an attorney and I can't give legal advice. But the subject matter is, is that if I was dealing with John Doe, the attorney, and then... I'm in a courtroom, and all of a sudden, this other person is standing there that is not John Doe. He, in other words, when he identified himself, you remember how it starts off in the morning, you know, good morning, gentlemen, and then this guy will say who he is, mm-hmm. okay? At that moment in time, if he turns around and says, I am Tom Jones working for, you know, Doe's firm, law firm, if they, now, you at that moment in time, he just made um, uh, a definitive statement, right? Yes. Okay. At that moment in time, when he announced himself and you had already sent over a letter regarding the subject matter of falsified documents, what would you do? Right after he identified himself, working for that firm. But wouldn't he put in a notice of appearance prior to appearing? Well, I don't know if he has to do that because usually, like, if you look at the complaint, they will sit there and they'll have, like, the law firm. Okay. And, and then, like, they'll have the, what they'll call the supervising attorney at the, you know, right underneath the signature line. But then you'll look underneath it and they'll have a battery of attorneys. I see. Okay. Okay. And that guy may be one of them. He may be one of them. Hmm. But that's not the issue. So would you ask the um, appearing attorney, has he had a chance to review the notice um, that you sent? I don't even care if he did. Okay. Why? Agency, principal agent, the principal, principal. Was I not speaking to the supervising attorney in the first place? Did I not send him notice? Yeah, okay. Okay, so... Is that claiming, so now we could sit there and say, oh, are we now going to claim that there was defective conveyances of notices within your law firm? Okay, so when he first identified himself, you were asking the question, what's the first thing you would say after he identifies, after Tom Jones identifies himself? Yes, what would you say? I don't know. Objection. I have no knowledge of who this gentleman is right here. I, I, you could do that. How about, how about asking him uh, if he's received all of the documents and notices from the prior attorney? I don't. 
Yeah, I, I might suggest a sidebar and uh, before yeah, any damages to parties, just, any further okay. damages. What? You just nailed it. Sidebar. Mm -hmm. Before any further damages occur to parties involved. Um, to all sure. parties and attendants, prior to there being damages to the public or to the private and to all parties in attendance, there are evidences in which the judge may want to review in camera before this proceeding or okay and, hold, yeah. hold on Lydia, I think I'd back up a little I would say to them did you get now it's an open court did you get all letters any kind of communication from all the parties yes or no and if he says yes then sidebar him because he's already made another statement and now you're going back and saying hey buddy <clears throat> no the reason I would do the way the reason uh, I'm not going to say that you couldn't do that you could mm -hmm. yet the reason well, first of all with him being present, he is supposed to be in possession of all of the documents in order to move the case. That's why he's right. there. Agreed. But the issue that's coming down is you these guys got enough hoosbah that they're actually going to show up in the court after receiving a, no, a memorandum in law that says you're dealing with falsities. And in, I would say I would say no, Kenny, but it is possible because depending on where the case is, I mean, if it was you're, false, you're saying falsities and you got a freaking jury trial coming up a week later, that it is possible. Well, I would say jury trial. If you have a trial going on, who's in default at the moment? Well, they are. They are right. Yeah. Okay. So now, if this was still a pre-trial, you know, evidentiary hearing or show cause or whatever it was at that point in time. You know, maybe they were under motion to compel, whatever it was, discovery, whatever. It doesn't matter. Right. If the issue is, is that Ubu showed up Ubu. and he is an underling, mm -hmm. do we want to hurt that man? No, not necessarily. But I think that your objective for calling for the sidebar would be to inform the judge to bring it to his attention. Is that correct? That's correct, to allow this person the opportunity to go, Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. I don't want to have nothing to do with that shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you're following me? damage, yeah. And not only that, now that he is informed, doesn't he have to take it to the senior partner? Oh, yes, okay. Because the supervising attorney essentially deceived him. Oh, right. And what if, what if he says, no, we'll just keep moving on, and I guess then... I guess he can accept the liabilities, if there's any liabilities going towards him. Wonderful. Your Honor, at uh, this point in time, the defense seeks, and I'm going to say that we're the defendant, I may move something such as, Your Honor, at this time, the defense seeks to um, uh, withdraw or vacate to amend my complaint. Ah. And what would be the new cause? Would it be fraud? Uh I don't know if I would go as far as using the word fraud, but uh, perhaps yeah. Al administration, misrepresentation. Okay, misrepresentation would probably be. You know, uh, perhaps, you know, um, I could even, uh, instead of saying that they committed fraud with instrument, uh, committing fraud on the court. And at that point in time, the judge is going to pull his hair and go, what the hell is going uh -huh. on here? And then yeah, you, you around and bring up two instruments and say, here, take a look. Yeah, so 
uh, and adding the cause of committing fraud on the court would seem very plausible because that's what, in fact, is happening. And the judge, it doesn't take a preponderance of evidence to prove that. It just takes a, a few documents that are manufactured to prove that. Yep. It, all, it, all it takes is just one. Well, <clears throat> two, you take two documents and you say, here, Your Honor, check it yourself. Put, them, put the signatures together and hold them up to the light, and uh, and if need be, well, we're, since we're moving the trial, I'll just update my uh, my witness list, and I'll bring in an FD uh, an FBI um, signature um, expert witness list, and uh, have him give his assessment on this. Ah, uh, okay. And at that point in time, when it comes out, which it shall come out, that this is this right here is impossible for this to happen. There's no way you can have two exact signatures. And at that point in time, and being that they were already made aware of this, and they made the election to continue moving forward at this time, I'm going to hold them accountable. Wouldn't it, since it's criminal, wouldn't it, wouldn't the judge have to be the one to hold them accountable? Oh, well, at that point in time, because the judge has become aware of the subject matter, then he too, well, at that point, he would have to contact the senior partner. It's also civil, too. You could be accountable civilly, too. Well, because he's part of the bar. It's, it's a rule. It's a rule. I think it's like Rule 15 or something like that. I think the, I think the term is non-feldeasance or something. Non-feldeasance where uh, if he sees a crime or like here sees, if he's like Janet Tapolitano or so he hears something, sees something, say something, he has a fiduciary duty to report it if he sees a crime. And yeah. this may be a crime. So. Oh, see, at this point there, the subject matter is, is that it has uh, elevated itself where not only are the attorneys reported to the bar association, but if it elevated itself to the subject to where now you're bringing it to the attention. But remember, you gave them opportunity to withdraw. That's what the sidebar was. You provided them opportunity. Are you sure, counsel, that you want to continue going forward when you know at this point in time that you're seeking to enforce falsified evidences. Are you sure you want to do this? Because you're going to be accepting the liabilities of your entire law firm at this moment in time. Are you sure you want to do this? Mm. Now, now Joey six year, you know, just got out of law school. Joey six year. <laughs> <laughs> going to sit there and go, whoa, 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 your honor. You know, uh, I seek to have a postponement for opportunity to uh, uh, to be able to speak to my, you know, superiors or, you know, whatever. Because he's not going to want to accept that liability. I wouldn't. Because that's going to ruin his career. He's going to, he, he's going to, he's going to be burdened with student loan debts and he's going to be stripped of his law license. <laughs> At the end of the Wells Fargo handbook. <laughs> and he could potentially be facing criminal charges. Yeah. 
Now, is that what he wants to do? And rest assured, this is going to make the newspapers. So this this is not something that they want to they want to play with. But again, it's only those that know the rules that would be able to bring this forward. And remember, you can't just bring this stuff up without there being a four notice as a form of memorandum over to the opponent before you move into that arena. You can't just call for sanctions in an open court. You can't do that. You're in violation of the code then. Oh, so you might, okay, so but let's let's say that you're in court and they bring some documents and then later you find that that they falsified these documents. Now you're, you're as you're moving on your claim. Now, you know, I mean, I guess it's they just, okay, but you didn't know that until you know you verified whatever. Because things are moving on the court, you may not be able to have that opportunity to look at the signatures or whatever. Yep. And then after you saw that, say, well, wait a minute, buddy. When you brought in the court, doesn't doesn't uh, pass the smell test anymore. Yep. No, so. And at that point in time, when you like now, I guess it becomes subjective. Remember, they put, when they go to move evidences, generally speaking, you have at, at several days, generally, to inspect the evidences, mm-hmm. right? So at that point in time, if you didn't catch it at that point, remember, color of title. The idea is is that if you didn't catch it at that moment in time, but now the proceedings started to continue anyways, and then you recognized it, the mm-hmm. moment that you recognized it, is it not new evidence? Of course it is. Okay. So at that moment in time, would you not turn around and say, sidebar? And then you would take this to sidebar and you would bring this to the judge's attention and you would state over to the attorney, uh, expect, to, uh, expect to receive a memorandum from my office, you know, within 24 hours, you know, regarding this subject matter and whether or not you want to pursue because at this time, the documents in which you are bringing forward is identified as being fraudulent. It's just something to consider. Mm-hmm. You know, and then sit there and say, do you agree, counsel, that perhaps you want to take this back and consult with the rest of your partners and your and your client before continuing? Remember, you got to bring that law there to them. Don't let the judge have the opportunity to make that decision. You, you present it. Yeah, and also the other the other concept is that because uh, a plaintiff and defendant, and chances are you're the defendant in that court. It seems like you're. For me, it, it seems like you're. There's two fronts going on. One is the attorney, the, the attorney, and one is the judge. And it's, and it's and being that you're a defendant, you're dead or whatever. It becomes a little. It's it's like you're battling two fronts, like like you know that I wouldn't say battle, but you, in a way you are. You know what's going on in this court. So, well, you are facing the challenge from the opponent, and let's make no mistake about it. We're also facing a challenge for the bench. However, the bench operates as a trustee. They're spo- they they sit suggestively impartial. 
When you bring the law to the bench, the bench is to listen to what is going on and then render a decision based upon whatever it is that you brought forward. This is also the same subject matter of entering the objections for the appeal. Right, just in case that he, the judge makes a determination again. Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So now, what are you going to do? The now when the when they when they sit there and you bring evidence forward, and you're doing it sidebar to provide the opportunity for your opponent to withdraw. You're following me. In other words, you are really violating the integrity of the legal profession at this point in time, brother. You have an option. You can continue to move forward. Of course, you've you got to make sure that you say this. You can't just, you know, say, look at this and just leave it. You actually have to say these things. Words to the effect, anyways. Well, you're giving relief that can be granted. You're doing like sort of 12B6. That's what you're, you're doing. You're saying, to, you're saying to your opponent, look, dude, you are about to make a critical error. Not only are you going to destroy your own career, you're going to destroy your law firm or the law firm in which you work for, and you're going to blow your client's case directly out of the water. In other words, you're screwed. Do you want to continue? Now, as a junior partner or associate or whatever of a law firm, he is not going to accept that obligation, that liability. He won't do it. As a matter of fact, I would even go on the limb and say that the judge would probably recommend that attorney saying, you know what there, Junior? You probably want to ask for a postponement at this time and go back and talk to your, your senior. You want to bring this stuff to his attention before you continue. Because, uh, you know, as the defendant, I would state, if he's going to continue, Your Honor, then I'm going to seek leave in order to amend my complaint to include fraud upon the court. Mm-hmm. Now, and now, during the period of time that I seek to amend my complaint, right? Now, that's the first thing that's going on. Would I not send out the memorandum over to the law firm that identified, you know, going along the lines that just we just now noticed this, mm. right? I just now caught this. Now, when I make my leave in order to amend my complaint, would I not turn around and put that inside a memorandum and send that damn thing over to the firm, Mm -hmm. my opponent? That way I set them up for sanctions. So if they step back into the courtroom, I got them by the short hairs, just by them showing back up. Well, what kind of what kind of sanctions would the uh, uh, if you did catch them and, and they were the judge was going to sanction an attorney? I mean, sanctions of money, but I mean, I guess it could be from mile to wild, I guess. But what other kind of sanctions would be um, that could happen in in court with you know? They can put them in jail. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, that's wild. <laughs> and, and here, now, see, this is going under like when you look at contempt. See, when you're looking at sanctions. The subject matter of sanction falls under contempt of court. And this is something that you guys may want to check out. Uh, there, when you look at contempt of court, 
uh, contempt of court falls under uh, uh, different categories. One is called indirect, and the other is called direct. Now, in this subject matter, we're talking about direct. Mm-hmm. In other words, they, they know damn well what the hell they're doing. You follow what I'm saying? This is not, this is not you know, oh, well, just an oversight type deal. You know, or, you know, an attorney, um, you know, becoming a little bit emotional or something, and, you know, during the course of his plea, and he starts, you know, spitting stuff out, and, you know, you have a jury sitting over there, and, you know, he gets all worked up, and he starts saying stuff that, um, let's say, uh, was not permitted, you know, or may have been barred by the judge, you know, during the course of um, um, admissions. You know, there, you, you can be restricted for what you can, what you can and cannot say, or let me reframe, what you cannot say, you know, during the course of your presentations. Um, if they have been challenged by your opponent and shown that maybe they were hearsay evidences or perhaps they were just circumstantial or perhaps it was, you know, unfounded or whatever, you know, not proven. And... And the attorney sits there and goes off on this rant or tirade over there, and he starts spitting stuff out. Now, that right there, it could elevate to direct, but more likely than not, that would be considered an indirect charge mm-hmm. of contempt. A direct charge of contempt is where Ubu knew. He knew what he's doing, and what he's doing is he's moving forward in a criminal form. It's criminal. They can go to jail for 10 years on that. Oh, wow. But if you get, if, if I would, I'm thinking this. If you get very well scolded at what you're doing here, if you could walk into court and you could overcome this, you may be able to, you know, um, to be able to stop some of these attorneys to, um, from their chicanery, I guess. And if you can't, you know, I mean, you're, I mean, hate to say this, but you could, you're actually, will, you'll, you'll end up taking somebody out. I mean, uh, they want to keep going. So the foreclosure machine would have to hire somebody else. So I don't really want to go down that way. I but don't even know what it's Charles. That's the whole thing, is that, like, for example, if you perfect a claim, is it not perfected? Mm-hmm. Yep. How can a perfected claim be challenged? I mean, other than the fact of me trying to challenge it, Mm-hmm. But isn't it essentially defeated before it ever launches? Yeah. It, it, so, in mm-hmm. other words, it becomes a stare decisis or res judicata in so many words, right? Uh-huh. It's already, I mean, it's perfected. How, I mean, what more evidence do you need? Now, within that context or within that field, is that it would seem to me that if a party that was that perfected their argument, at least, you have to use that in subjective terms, if you know what I mean. There's, there's no such thing as absolute. But it, I, I would say that one could sit there and tailor an argument in such a fashion to where it's virtually undefeatable, and I'll, I'll use that virtually undefeatable. When those kind of things are brought forward, to, your, to the opponent, what is the possibility of the client seeking to continue forward? I think very slim to none. So do I. And now at that time, would they perhaps try to get another firm to do it? 
perhaps, but wouldn't they be basing the same exact argument? Exactly. And there's too many uneducated people to to fleece. They wouldn't continue to hit their heads against the wall. And the thing about it is, is that the more times that they kept trying to hack at that door, the more that it's brought to the public's light. In case law, yeah. And so, I, well, I don't think it would make it the case law because they oh, would okay. track, right? But the idea is, is that the, uh, this paper just keeps coming out. You know what I mean? It, it, it's still being kept in the records. It stays in the record for a period of time before it's purged if they don't... Um, um, if they don't follow through with the proceedings, it'll only sit in there for so long before it's purged. I don't know how long the court systems keep it. Something like three years, or maybe it's six years, or something like that. And then they purge the records if it's if it, if the case didn't follow through. So the issue is that if when we were recall when we talked about checklists, forming checklists. Yes. If you go, if you begin to design a checklist, and as you go through it, all the steps and all the things in which we've been talking about, you know, over the various workshops and calls and whatnot, you start putting that checklist together. What are all the steps? You know, what is needed, et cetera? What needs verified? How do you move your discovery, complaints, et cetera, et cetera? All that. And you make up this checklist. Now, if you are the movement or you're the respondent, it doesn't matter because all you would do is just retool your checklist, you know, whether you were the move, you know, plaintiff or the defendant. And the issue is you would still hit virtually the same points. When you respond in such a manner, okay, now remember from the originating complaint or answer, if you are answering to a complaint, the, the answer is actually to be extremely brief. Now, at that point in time, then you have the evidentiary hearing. At the evidentiary hearing, the parties come, they come together. It's kind of like a meeting of the creditors. They come together. They throw whatever it is down on the table to say, here you go. And you go, that's not sufficient. That's when you open up, you know, because, the, the, you know, this is the part of the pretrial. This is all pretrial stuff. At the point that you, at the point that you say, okay, if that's all you got, then let's go ahead and continue. That opens the door for discovery at that point. So the interrogatories go off, the request for admissions and all that other stuff, right? When you sit there and you send off a battery of requests for admissions and you sit there and you send off, you know, maybe about, oh, we'll say some finely tooled interrogatories, maybe, I don't know, seven, ten questions maybe, you know, saving some of them, you know, like 10, 15 of them, and you send those out and the opponent looks at this and, of course, they're going to be requesting from you as well. When they get the evidences that you are about to show that they are committing a fraud, and keep in mind, you would also put in a memorandum of law as the, you know, to sustain potential sanctions against them for doing what they're doing. At that point in time, I think that they're going to have that come to Jesus moment, whether they believe or not. Mm-hmm. 
because all they're going to do is see, you know, they may want to try to drag this out for as many billable hours as they can against the client. However, I think that they know that they can't continue with this case. You you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then when they don't produce the documents that you have, you know, you know, the supporting documents for the request, and you move for the motion to compel, and then they don't produce the documents again, at that time, don't you move for a summary judgment? I mean, that's if you're doing note argument. But if you're moving for quiet title action, at that time, you would request a declaratory judgment. Right? Because they didn't produce the documents. Some of seems so simple. It's a, such a simple thing to do. It doesn't seem like it's like, not freaking hard, you know? But. Well, it's not really, I mean, the, the concept of it isn't that hard. What it is is filling out the uh, the response, you know, whether whether you're filing the complaint or whether you're filing the answer. There's the ticket in my assessment. That's the ticket right there. You know, most of the things in which we're discussing right now will not make their appearance until discovery. When they sit there and they start throwing some documents over towards you, you know, at least the fundamental documents. And again, if you can sit there and hold a couple pieces of paper together and it's the exact same signature, you've got them by the short hair. They can't get out from under that. And what about the other the uh, the documents that are like pre-done for them and I just have to sign their name? I mean, doesn't that have some merit too that, wait a minute, this is not, you're, you're, you have an affidavit that's saying this and this and this, and if we just so happen to find another affidavit that has the exact same verbiage and just different signatures, that brings in another contention there, too, that, wait a minute, this is supposed to be something you swore that you didn't have knowledge about, and somebody else is saying the exact same words. How is it possible for that, too? Then, you know. then if that would be the case, then you turn around and, and, again, another memorandum of law. Are you sure that you want to proceed with this right here? Because... Uh, we're going to call to the witness stand, and we're going to subpoena these people to bring their records with them. Mm -hmm. And when that when that starts rolling out like that, when you start getting a line of people that you're going to depose, then there's a, and they and you have already told them where this was going. Remember, disclosure that's part of the game. Disclosure. You don't hide. You disclose. When they find out what you're doing, it's like, oh, my goodness. Because, you know, they, they recognize you're not just an easy target. Now, the next part of it is, is that they have to weigh the value. Do they want case law developed? Would they rather eat it than have case law developed? And I'm going to go with they'll eat it before they allow the case law at least at this point in, in a history. And if you compare that to the fines that they pay, that's like a nothing amount. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you, Dave. If you compare the loss of the claim, meaning the price of the house, that's like nothing compared to the uh, dollar amounts that they pay in fines. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it would be to drop it. Yeah, because see, once it once it hits case law, you know, um, now whatever state that you're in, if you hit case law, 
then that would mean all of those people within that state can essentially fall back on the same damn thing, and they've got all the records right there to frame it from. It's almost like a template, subjectively speaking, because it's all been admitted. Are you are you following what I'm saying? It's just like the 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 case that Charles had brought up earlier. He pulled up the documents. There it is. It's public record. Mm-hmm. When you have something that's in the record that's been formed as case law, and rest assured that if it comes that way, the opponent's going to appeal. I mean, you can almost assure that they will because they don't want that. If it ever went that far. Now. If you have your your T's crossed, your di and I's dotted, I do not see how the um, the appellate court's going to rule against you. Not especially when that panel turns around and they take two pieces of paper and put it together and hold it up to the light and they go, uh, "Yeah, there's a problem here." You know, or you know, you're going through like, for example, missing assignments, missing notary stamps. You know, bring up vendorscape issues. Uh, you know, uh, you have two parties in two different states that are signing the documents on the same freaking day. Is another example. Yeah, that happened to me, Kenny. Though that ha- it actually happened to me that they signed a document in what was Virginia or something like that, and, and the very next day they were in Cleveland, Ohio, or something like that. It was a bizarre. Like this is impossible. You couldn't physically do it. You know. Uh, the theory behind it is very unlikely. You know, overnight express, impossible. Yeah, but then that, that, that was in Cleveland, and then they filed it in the county, which was to our south. <laughs> what they wait for the mail and then race it down there? There was, you know, yeah, it was bizarre. Well, remember, they can now use electronic filing. So electronic filing really speeds things <clears throat> up. Uh, it has to follow with the written document. Nevertheless, the subject matter is that they do use the electronic filing systems. However, documents that have been notarized in one state, they're not to be used as a form of transmission where another person takes the transmitted document and then claims firsthand knowledge and then signs and notarizes in another state. They have to have the originating document. That's true. I think uh, also that uh, I think the contention was that the notary we didn't we were complaining that the notary we didn't have no idea whether they were in good standing or anything, and uh, we tried to invalidate the notary that was in another state. And that was something we were working on. So. Well, and again, remember we got that 140 point checklist that we go through you know, to make the identifications for all the defects within or potential defects that reside within the assignments. And now all we have to do is just carry the principle of the defects of assignment as recognizing them as being a security instrument that when you filter it through the UCC, the that the security instrument becomes the negotiable instrument, which becomes the instrument that ties directly to person that's entitled to enforce instrument. Did that make sense? Yeah, I followed that. Mm-hmm. You no, know, because remembering, even though that they are two separate instruments, 
you know, the assign, you know, the the deed or the covenant is one one document. It's it's an instrument. And then we look at the promissory note. It too is an instrument. Mm-hmm. However, for the because we're talking about real property, these two instruments are they become one. Right. So now they become the instrument. This is why they're not to be bifurcated, because they're the instrument. Now, does it mean that if they separate the two, then the note becomes an unsecured instrument whereby they can still move forward for a collection? It doesn't stop them. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and now that brings up another argument as far as recognizing the instrument as being unsecured, and it's like, okay, well, what are you enforcing it against? Well, we're enforcing enough of that property that we have bifurcated, and we want that property back. That's what they're enforcing. If it's bifurcated, I thought that that just resulted in a nullity, or the one has no no force. I mean, two different court cases. You've got to get them to make admission that it was attached to the assignment, don't you? Yes. If you can't get admission, then it just stands as an unsecured obligation. Does that make sense? Well, still, it, what makes sense to me is that it should be viewed as a nullity. You can get it nullified. You can get it to where it becomes nullified, but uh-huh. you have to go through the proceedings in order to do it. Sure, and that makes sense, yeah. So, in other words, the, it doesn't stop the opponent from moving forward with an unsecured instrument in an effort to enforce. Yeah. You drop the ball um, uh, challenging... Yeah. The claim that you could get, uh, you, you could end up becoming liable for that unsecured debt, but they can't foreclose on your house because you have already separated the two. You know, suggestively, a quiet title action had already been uh, performed, which separated the two. That way, the lien has been taken off the title, so now that note cannot be used to seize. The property, right? Is that the only way, Kenny, to get a lien off a piece of property? It's going to be the quiet title. There's no other way. There's no other. Uh, way. No other way. Other way. Now there has been. Now, generally speaking, any records in which have been formed within the county against real property, they cannot be removed. That's called tampering. So, but however, it has been known that records that have been formed on real property, that when they have been identified that they have been layered as clouds, that that, that the judge have stricken those records. They have oh. actually removed them from the record. Now, it's not like an everyday occurrence type thing, and you, your attorney has to be worth his salt in order to get it done, but yeah, it can be done. I want to point out something else that I learned that I saw today while reading, and I've been hearing from county recorders and Dave Crager and others that the counties have been um, not getting the the number of dollars that they are due to recording assignments because of MERS. So I saw a chart 
that listed out the years from 2000 to 2013, I think it was. And I could see the dollar figures for recording fees received, and it declined not a lot in 01 and 02, but gosh, by 05 and 06 and 07, the number of dollars collected by this particular county had dropped dramatically. So it started out in 2000 at 116000 for the year in recording fees on real property. Dropped all the way down to $15,000 in 2013. Wow. That just like was a big eye eye opener. Wow. Well, you know, that in itself brings an interesting element as far as persons who are seeking to make a change within their within their county. In other words, to perhaps have considered a county audit done on the land records, which is the state for the purposes of comparison, you know, go to the county land uh, commissioner uh, of the county and sit there and say, you know, um, have you ever taken a look at what the amount of income as far as recordations within the county you know, prior to 1995 and from 1995 to current. And I'm sure that none of them have, you know, or most of them anyways, have never even looked at that. It's never been brought to their attention to even look. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, it's not as if if they were sitting in office for a few years that they recognized, well, gee, you know, last year we got $500,000, I'm making up a number, $500,000 in recordation, and this year we only got three hundred and forty. And the year preceding that, you know, we got around 500000 And, you know, and, and now it seems as though it's dropping, and that would either imply that people aren't selling property or they're not registering properties. And yet... But that is so short-term, just those few years, that in order for them to make a real evaluation of the amounts of losses in recordation, that they would have to take a trip back into the records and take a look from 1995 and then move forward to current. And then when they sit there and start to recognize, my goodness, we were getting a million dollars a year on the average for a number of years preceding. And then if you if they were putting it on a chart, they could sit there and just watch how it had declined all the way up to 2008. It would where be an eye-opener for them, too. What's that? It would be an eye-opener for them, too. Yeah. And say, and the reason for this right here is because of an organization that has been circumventing the land records and, in so many words, uh, the, the, the court's, have already recognized that what they're doing, um, well, let's just put it this way, you're entitled to those monies. But the only way that you're going to get the, that done is that you have to have an audit performed on your land records. Mm. And we just happen to know the people. <laughs> but how long would it take to do an audit of records? I mean, I mean, uh, a general audit. I mean, let's say you had size um, of the county, but you're looking at four to six months, maybe eight months. Yeah, I think Williamson County, if you remember, Chuck, was four month period. Four months. How many properties was it? Do we have an idea on that? How many properties he, exactly? What? He said that in his report, and 
I don't remember the number. Sorry. Yeah. And okay. they, they and all they did was took the obvious. Yeah, I think they only did like 500 or so case samples. Yeah, the the ones that they pulled out, but those were the ones that were obvious defects. I mean, the ones that just jumped right off the page. So I mean, like they. So in other words, could there have been an intensive, you know, like you know the 140 checkpoint checklist, no. you know, to each of those? Well, yeah, and I'll be almost assured that you start looking into these a little bit closer, and I am sure that. Uh, they would have probably, I'll just use a parental principle and say at least 80% of them were defective. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm almost sure that they would be. Just, you know, just using statistic probabilities, I would say that, mm -hmm. you know, at least 80% of them were defective. Now, if we sit there and look at the, the subject matter of just, you know, just using just crazy math and said there's, there's over 70 million slander titles and there's 50 states. I realize that there are states like California has a lot more housing than there you may find in Wyoming, as an example, or Montana or something. But nevertheless, if you sit there and just kind of ran the numbers, you know, in that way, you could still sit there and say that there's more than one million on average, one million defective titles in each state. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 50 states, over 70 million slander titles. So there's got to be, you know, you know, I'll say a, a million per each state and then just start tacking on more for larger states. Well, there's 88 counties in my state, so 88 counties divided by a million, that would give you how many properties per each county. I mean, in general, I mean, I guess it's bigger counties, but there are some numbers there. Think yeah, if, if you're just looking, yeah, at the at the defective side of it, if you... What'd you say there was was eighty eight. Eighty eight. Yeah. Yeah, that would be something I just have I had a calculator here, Charles. I just picked it up. That'd be eleven thousand three hundred and sixty three defective titles. Per county. Per county. You know, that statistically that is. Here's another interesting datum from that report, and that is that the MERS um recordations of Reconveyance of title, I think it was called, or satisfaction of lien. Can't remember the the category title, but um, liens that have been paid off and reconveyed. There were almost no recordations from MERS in that category. I mean, like between zero and five is all for the whole year. So it's like once they get recorded into the MERS system, they never get a clear or uh, um, a satisfaction of title. Oh, yeah, I agree. That's right. And now they're getting, they don't even want to be named, which I find I, interesting, although they want to be named in a lawsuit. Yeah. It reminds me of the Hotel California. You can record into MERS, but you can't get out. <laughs> <laughs> you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. <laughs> That's bad. That's kind of cute, Dave. Thank you. <laughs> we need a good laugh. Okay, gentlemen, um, anything more for tonight, or we've got ready to close this puppy up? Close it up and put a bow on it. Mm. Mm. Uh, what's the snowman and the snow, and what was the other thing we had to do? Yeah. we have anybody on to, for any questions or anything like that? Do we want to check that? Yeah, one last, one last check. 
we have any parties that have any questions, it doesn't matter the subject matter. Well, I guess we're done for tonight then, right, Kenny? Okay. Well, thank you for joining us, everyone. Well, like Kenny says, be good to yourself, right? And to each other. And to each other. All right. See you tomorrow, everybody. Okay. Nancy, you want to? Yeah. Yes. You want to go ahead and end it? It's your call. It's ending at 821 Pacific. That would be 9 or 10. Uh, ooh, I don't know. 11. 1121 uh, Eastern. There we go. How about that? Have a good night. Be good to yourselves and to each other. And check back in two weeks. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.